as you're making your way back to your seats, grab a Bible that's on the seat next to you or one that you brought with you from home. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. We're going to be starting at verse 13 this morning, working through the second half of the second chapter of Matthew. Uh, and we're working just out of the lectionary today just because we're in this weird period in between uh, Christmas and New Year's. And so uh, knowing that a lot of people are still traveling and visiting families and still others are getting over the plague that has descended upon Fishers, Indiana and Hamilton County, uh, we kind of knew this was going to be a little bit wonky. And I didn't want to start a sermon series Uh, on this Sunday, especially the sermon series that I'm getting into. And so I've been talking about it for the last couple of weeks. Some of you may have heard, others of you may have heard rumblings and figured that it must be a false uh, false story that you're hearing. But the truth is, is starting on January 5th, we're going to go a new series for six months. And we're going to live in the book of Leviticus. And all God's people said, woohoo, right? Yes, the book of Leviticus for six months. See, here's, here's my thinking on this. I know that this is a time of year in which people are making resolutions and plans for the coming year. And a number of people say, I am going to read through the Bible this coming year. And they start in Genesis 1 and it goes great. And they get through Genesis and they push into Exodus and all oh, the stories moving along and it's wonderful. And we get Exodus and then we hit Leviticus and you're like, okay, I'm done. This was a bad idea. And they just bow out. I am going to help you make it through Leviticus. Not I, I mean, not just me. I got like a stack of books because, like, I understand that book. But we're going to try to make it through the Levit- We aren't going to try. We're going to do it, and we're going to do it in six months. And here's what I believe. I fully believe. Some of you are groaning, but I fully believe that we are going to be surprised by this book. This summer when we were on sabbatical, I listened to a podcast about Leviticus and it sparked my interest, and the, the guy on the podcast mentioned a book. So I bought the book and started reading it, and I got about halfway through it and said, oh my goodness, I want to preach on this book so badly, because to understand, I think, Jesus, and to even understand a lot of the New Testament, we really have to understand Leviticus, which seems, a, seems really, really weird. I think a lot of us try to go our whole lives with avoiding the book of Leviticus, uh, and and avoiding understanding it. But I think if we understand it, we will actually see the gospel in it. Like the gospel is in Leviticus and it's all over the pages and it's the gospel that connects us to God and it's the gospel that reconciles relationships with others. And so I am super excited about it. Hope you will get there with me and we'll kick that off on, uh, we'll kick it off next week and we'll spend uh, all the way through June in the book of Leviticus. So buckle up, it's gonna be great. So today though, Matthew. Let me pray and then we'll get into, uh, we'll read the text. Father, may your word be our rule. May your spirit be our guide. And above everything, we pray that Jesus Christ would be our chief concern. Even so, we pray. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Matthew chapter 2, starting at verse 13. When they had gone, the they there are the Magi, when the Magi had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up and took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. 
When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity, who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time that he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, the obvious context of this story is the visit of the Magi to Mary, Joseph, and the baby Jesus. So what we know from the story, and I'm sure many of us, most of us, all of us are familiar with the story of the Magi. The Magi are in their home out somewhere in the east, and they look up in the sky, and they see a star in the sky, a star that hasn't been there before. And they associate that star with the birth of a king in Judea. And so they follow that star to Judea, and upon arriving in Jerusalem, they go to the obvious place where you would expect a king to be born, the palace. And they go and they call an audience with King Herod, and King Herod hears them. And they say, we have come to say to, to, for the, because of the birth of the king of the Jews. Now Herod hears about this, that there has been this so-called king born, of the, born among him, or in his place where he reigns. And it, and it freaks him out just a little bit. If we're being completely honest about how that news affected Herod, it freaks Herod out. You have to remember that the kings at this time were simply pawns used by Rome in order to keep the peace in, Rome, in Rome's uh, districts, right? So Rome has come and they occupy Jerusalem. They install King Herod to be the one who rules over them. And so Herod really only has power and authority, not because he's earned it, not because the people respect him, but because Rome has given it to him. And Rome allows him to continue to have power and authority as long as he keeps order there. But the minute he loses order, his authority will be taken away and Rome will simply put a new person in place. The other reason or way that the kings at that time kept their power and their authority was not just by making sure that the occupying country or empire was happy, but also by exerting themselves over the people. And so a lot of times they ruled very ruthlessly. And this is how Herod ruled. But Herod was also a very shrewd politician. He, he, was, he was cruel, yes, but he was, he was highly intelligent. And so when the Magi show up and say, hey, we're here to worship the king of the Jews, the, Herod's response is not, you guys got it wrong. I'm the king of the Jews. You should be worshiping me. Instead, he enters into the narrative that they are bringing in order to get the whole story so that he can wrap his mind exactly around what is happening. 
And so he listens to them and, hey, tell me more about this story. He calls in his chief priests, his, his, or the chief priests of the Jewish people. He calls them in. He calls in the, the teachers of the law and say, hey, help me understand what these magi are saying. I mean, they're saying that they're coming to worship the king of the Jews. What does your text say? What are the prophecies about this? Help me understand exactly what is going on. And so he takes all of this information in and just listens. He then tells the Magi, okay, you go, worship this child wherever he is, find out where he is, then come back and tell me about the child and where he's located so that I too may go and worship. But as the story goes, the Magi are warned in a dream not to go back by the same route and to not tell Herod where the child is, and so they return home by a different route. Herod, though, is not a fool. He doesn't let this lie. He trusts what he heard from the Magi. He trusts what the chief priest and the teachers of the law have told him about the prophecies. And he suspects that out there somewhere, in the land that I sit over, is a threat to my, my chair, my throne, my power. And Herod, Herod is all about Herod. Herod, like I said, he is a cruel, ruthless man. Herod is a man who has protected his authority at all costs. Everyone is ancillary, even his family members. Herod has had one of his wives killed. Herod has had three of his sons killed, all in an effort to maintain his power and control of the throne. And so with this power being threatened, he acts. And he says, all right, if the king of the Jews is to be born in Bethlehem, then I want every child who is male and two years and under in Bethlehem and in the uh, in surrounding vicinity to be killed. Now just for a moment, let's, let's pause and reflect. Maybe not even reflect. Let's just acknowledge the world that Jesus was born into. A few nights ago, we all stood in here with candles burning and we sang, we sang a song that we know well about the coming of Christ into the world. Silent night. Holy night. All is calm. All is bright. Now maybe that was true of that night. Maybe that night when Jesus was born, it was a silent night. It for sure was a holy night. Maybe in the night that Jesus was born, it was a calm night. Maybe it was a bright night. But the calmness, the silentness does not define the world that Jesus was born into. Jesus was born into a world where children are murdered in order to protect the political power of a tyrant. Jesus was born into a world where children are fodder for political policy. Jesus was born into a world that is willing to see children die because it makes sense according to some greater cause in the mind of some politician somewhere. And as Jesus enters into this world where rulers of this world enact policies that hate children, God sends an angel once again to Joseph and says, Get up, take your child, take your wife, take your family, and flee. And at that moment, when Jesus and his family have to flee their home country, they become refugees, political refugees seeking safety 
in a foreign country because of an evil ruler. Now, the story that Matthew is telling us begins to lay a foundation for how we are to understand the ministry of Jesus that is to come. This is what's happening in this book. What we have to remember is that the writers of the Gospels do not simply take stories of Jesus and haphazardly throw them together. They aren't just, hey, I remember this one time, so I'm going to throw it down, and then I remember this other thing, and then I'm going to throw it down. The writers of the Gospels are methodically making a particular case about who Jesus is, about what his ministry means, and what that means for the readers of the Gospels. They're very, very intentional. And they're very intentional about how they piece elements of the story together because of the particular audience that they're writing to. Each of the Gospels are written to, with a different audience in mind. So the writer of Mark is writing primarily to a Roman audience. Luke is writing primarily to a Greek audience. John is writing to a Roman and a Greek audience. And then Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. So because Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience, he tells these stories in a particular way that is going to speak to them. He pulls in prophecies. I mean, notice in this short little passage we read, there are three times that he points to the prophets. And he's connecting what the prophets are saying to Jesus in order to help his Jewish audience recognize that Jesus is the Messiah that they have been waiting for. Right? So everything that's happening in these first couple of chapters, particularly, and especially in Matthew 1, 2, is he's laying a foundation to help us understand who Jesus is and what his ministry is going to be like. And I think there's three things that we can pull from uh, verses 13 to 26 about Jesus' ministry. Three foundations that Matthew is laying down for us. First, Egypt has always played a particular and important role in the imagination and in the life of Israel. All right? Egypt was a place where the Israelites were enslaved. And so in their minds, in their imaginations, Egypt is associated with or even synonymous with oppression, injustice, and death. Right? So when we read it in the Old Testament, through the prophets, we read the New Testament, it's hearkening back to the time that the people of God were enslaved, where they were oppressed, where injustices were being done to them, and where they, where they experienced death. This is Egypt in their minds. But this fascinating thing happens here at the beginning of Matthew. Because that understanding of Egypt gets flipped on its head. For Jesus... Mary and Joseph, Egypt is no longer a place of oppression and injustice and death, but rather of security and life. Right? Matthew records that Herod heard the Magi's claim that they were coming to worship the king of the Jews. He believed that. And as such, he instituted a policy that every male child, two years and under, in Bethlehem and the surrounding regions should be killed. Home became hostile. Egypt became a refuge. The narrative gets flipped on its head. And and, and it's not just that Herod 
made home inhospitable. Matthew records earlier in the chapter 2 that when Herod finds out that the, the Magi are coming to worship the king of the Jews, it's not just that Herod is greatly troubled, but Herod is greatly troubled and all of Judea with him. All of Judea gets worked up because Herod is worked up about the possibility of this new king. All of Judea begins to side with Herod. Herod becomes frenetic. Herod becomes un, 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 unhinged. Herod becomes the one that we aren't sure what he's going to do, but it's likely going to be something horrible. And all of Judea responds to it and essentially takes Herod's side. Herod becomes trouble and all of Judea with him. And so what we know about human people is that we don't like to live in unstable societies. We prefer things to be nice and stable. We prefer things to be predictable. And so we try to maintain the status quo. And the way that we maintain the status quo is don't upset the ruler. And so all of Judea becomes disturbed. And as such, all of Judea becomes inhospitable to Jesus. And he flees. Jesus is welcomed and finds refuge with those who once tried to kill his ancestors and he's rejected by those who were supposedly looking for him. And this is going to be the theme throughout the life of Jesus. This is the foundation that Matthew is laying down. Jesus is rejected by the very people who seem the most pious the most religiously devout, the most likely to keep all the commandments. And Jesus is most likely to be accepted by those who are looked down upon by the religious leaders and those who are pushed to the margins of society and those who are deemed immoral. And, and we can... If we just use our imaginations, we can begin to understand why this might be so. We can begin to understand that the reason that the religious people might reject Jesus is because they're the ones who most likely think that they get it. They're the ones that think because of all their study, because of all their effort, because of the, all their good behavior, that they will understand what God is doing and that God and that the things that they are doing are blessed by God, right? They essentially say, like, this is how God is going to act, and then they put a box around it, and they expect God to show up this way, and then they say, because God acts this way, we ought to act like this, and they kind of put a box around it, and so this is what good people do, and this is what God does, and we understand it, and we get it better than the rest of you. And, and I think even more than that, they believe that not only do they understand what God is doing, and as a result, they understand what they should do, but because they understand what all of that, that what they are doing is ultimately blessed by God. We're the religious ones. We're the devout ones. We're the pious ones. We're the ones who are working to get it right. We're the ones who keep all the rules. Of course God is going to bless our behavior. So, of course, I can be one of the chief priests and the two rulers of the law, and I can go to Herod, and I can tell him this is what the Bible lays out and all of this sort of stuff, and I can support his policies because I can trust that God's going to bless that. How can I be wrong about what I'm doing? What do you want, Herod? Let me help you with that. Or look at me. Look at how good my behavior is. I'm so glad that I'm not like that tax collector right there. I mean, I could never be that horrible of a person. 
Or, yeah, I know we're breaking some of the laws. I know that we should really have a witness here. And it's mysterious that the man is missing from this. But come on, Jesus, what do you say? Shouldn't we kill this woman? I mean, that's what our law says. And we're trying to be good religious people here. We should kill her, right? That's what we should do. Of course we should kill Jesus. God will bless us for this. This is the right thing to do. He's obviously not the one that God is sending. He's not the Messiah. He's not going to save us. He's not going to sit on the throne. This is, I mean, there's all these reasons why Jesus isn't the one. Of course we should kill him. He's a blasphemer. And we can trust that because look how pious we are. Look how good we are. Look how devout we are. See, our good behavior often becomes a source of pride that blinds us to the activity of God to the degree that we can run into the risk of rejecting the one who has come. And we come to rely on ourselves and our goodness and our understanding, our cunningness, our decision-making, and ostensibly come to the place where we don't need a Savior because I'm doing all the right things. I'm good. I'm morally upright. And then on the flip side of that, it makes sense that we would see Jesus accepted by the sinners. Prostitutes and tax collectors and the poor and the infirmed and those who are pushed to the margins of society. It makes sense that they see Jesus who he is because they're the ones who know that they can't save themselves. They're the ones who know that they have done wrong. They know the one, they're the ones who know that they're far from God. Everybody's always telling them that they're far from God. And so somebody comes along and says, God has come, has sent me to rescue you. Yeah, of course they would accept this. When Matthew is telling us that Jesus is rejected by his own country and forced to find refuge in Egypt, he's setting a foundation. This is going to be what Jesus' ministry is like. Jesus will be rejected by those you think would accept him, and he's being accepted. he will be accepted by those you think would reject him. Jesus is going to flip all the narratives and all the understandings that you have about who God is and how God operates and who gets to draw near to God. It's going to flip your understandings and your narratives about religion. This is the foundation, or at least one of them. The second foundation that Matthew is laying down for us is found in the parallels in this story to the parallels of the Exodus story. So again, we've got Egypt at the forefront of our minds, and Egypt is a place of oppression and injustice and in death. And then as Matthew tells the story of Jesus going into Egypt and coming up out of Egypt, he quotes from the prophet Hosea. And he quotes this, it's Hosea 11, verse 1. He says, Out of Egypt I have called my son. Now, if you were to go back and read Hosea and in, in that section for the context, you would see very clearly that the prophet is talking about the nation of Israel, right? It's not a singular person that the prophet is referring to. It is, in fact, the entire nation as a son of God being called up out of Egypt. But Matthew takes it and creatively sort of switches the meaning, the obvious, the plain text reading of the text. He switches it up and says, no, it's not just about Israel. It's about this singular person. It's about Jesus. And he's saying Jesus is the one who comes up out of Egypt to save God's people. When Matthew does this, he's establishing a typology, right? So whereas Moses was the one who led led God's people out of Egypt to save them, 
Matthew is saying Jesus is the greater Moses. Jesus is going to be the greater Moses because he's not just leading God's people out of a land of oppression, injustice, and death. Jesus is going to lead the whole world out of oppression, injustice, sin, and death. This is what Jesus came to do. Jesus was born into a world that is cruel and hard, a world that readily uses children as fodder for policy in order to save that very world. That is what Jesus did. And so in order to save that world, Jesus doesn't skirt around the edges of the hard stuff. Jesus doesn't skirt around the edges of oppression, injustice, sin, and death. He doesn't rescue us from afar, kind of plucking us out of the air like some crane in one of those video games. But rather, Jesus goes directly into the injustice, oppression, sin, and death. Jesus goes into Egypt. Jesus goes into the place where oppression keeps its boot on the necks of people. Jesus goes into the place where injustice is the norm. Jesus goes into the place where the stench of death permeates everything. Jesus goes into sin. More than Jesus goes into sin, Jesus becomes sin. And Jesus goes into death. that he might lead us out. Jesus is the greater Moses. And so Matthew lays down this foundation in order that the Jewish people that he's writing to, and a couple thousand later, years later, you and I would understand that Jesus' ministry does this. It goes into the hard parts of life in order to lead us out. And I hope that this is a source of great comfort. Because what it means is that no matter what it is that we're facing, Jesus goes into the center of it with us. All right? So the relationship that is full of tension and conflict, that where there's a hard conversations that need to happen, like we don't go there by ourselves, but Jesus goes into the center of that with us us. That we don't face the illness that is ravaging our body by ourselves, but Jesus goes there with us. That the mental anxiety and the darkness that, that cloud our ability to see any joy, and we have to face that on our own, but Jesus goes into the center of that darkness and that anxiety with us. And Jesus does this in order that he might lead us out, that he might liberate us, that he might take us to new life. This is the pattern. And there's even this, this way in which I think it applies to us at this particular time of year, this last Sunday of 2019. The, I think there's this natural... There's this natural tendency that we have at this time of year to begin to reflect on the year that has just happened and look forward to the year to come. And one of the things that happens with me is because I tend to be a very hard critic is that I look back on the year and I see all my mistakes and my failures and my shortcomings and all of that sort of stuff. I see all the things that didn't happen this year. Or I see all the disappointments and the frustrations and all of that sort of stuff. Uh, and then I look into the future and I see all the things that I need to do, the things I want to accomplish and the goals that I have for myself, for my family and all of this sort of stuff. And, and listen, there's nothing wrong with that. But, but here's what I rarely do. Rarely do what do I do is take time to go, 
where was Jesus with me in the center of what I was facing? This past year when I went through something hard, did I take time to reflect on where Jesus was? Did I take time to, to see his grace at work? To reflect on the mercy that he showed me again and again and again? Am I thinking about the future and what Jesus is leading me to? What is Jesus leading me out of and what is Jesus leading me into? What Egypt did he take me from? And what new thing is he leading me to? Because again, it's, it's all of our Egypts. This is what Jesus does. He goes into the Egypt of our mind, the Egypt of our relationships, the Egypt of our world in order to lead us out. And Matthew lays this foundation down when he says, Jesus and his family went to Egypt. This is what his ministry is going to be like. The third foundation that Matthew is laying down for us is, it really could be the two-part B, but we'll just call it a third one for the sake of having three points in a sermon. The third foundation that Matthew is laying down is that Jesus defeats our sin by going into it. Right? If Egypt is a place of oppression and, and injustice, and death, then quite simply it is the place of sin. It is the place where sin rules. It is the place where sin is king. It is the place where sin is Pharaoh and sin is Herod. And Jesus goes into the place of sin in order to lead us out. Jesus will go into your sin in order to lead you out of it. And this is ultimately why Jesus is the greater Moses. It's not just because Jesus is going to lead us out of difficult situations. Jesus is going to lead us out of an illness or Jesus is going to lead us out of relational difficulty. The real reason that Jesus is the greater Moses is because he leads us out of sin and the death that sin brings. And, and, and it's not just that Jesus goes into the center of it, but as Paul says, that Jesus becomes our sin. He becomes the very thing that brings death and destruction and oppression. And he becomes that thing in order to break the power of it from within such that Herod, Pharaoh, the Herod and Pharaoh of our sin no longer enslaves us, no longer oppresses us, no longer brings death to us, but Jesus then leads us out into new life. As the new Moses, Jesus brings us to a promised land that is not a land that is figurative, or I mean, it's not a land of boundaries. It doesn't have, you know, rivers separating it on either side. It's not a land that is occupied by enemies, but rather it is a promised land of salvation, a land of forgiveness and mercy, a land of communion and intimacy, a land of rest. Jesus says, I will go into your Egypt. I will go into the Egypt that you bring upon yourself through your own sin and I will lead you out. I alone will lead you out. Your good efforts won't. Your, your good behavior won't. Your pious religiousness won't lead you out. What will lead you out is your recognition that you need a savior. You need someone to come. And when you recognize that, when you come to me for that, I will bring you out. I will bring you. I will bring you to your salvation. 
And Matthew lays this foundation down at the very beginning of his gospel and says, this is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus has come to do. Jesus is the greater Moses who will go into your Egypt and rescue you. Jesus is the greater Moses who will not simply rescue you to wander in the desert for 40 years, but Jesus will rescue you to the promised land of your salvation with God. And the rest of the gospel just builds on it. This is the gospel good news that comes to us. Jesus is your salvation. I pray that as you end 2019 and move into 2020, that it would become a reality that is even greater for you. That you would know that. You would trust in nothing other than the Jesus who leads you to life. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks. We give you thanks that you have sent Jesus into this world, this world that is difficult and hard and confusing, this world that is cruel at times, this world that can beat us down, this world that is hard because of our own sin. And you sent Jesus into it so that we might be saved. I pray that this gospel good news would be impressed deeper and deeper onto our minds. That may it sink down to the depths of our bones and reside there such that we are defined by this good news that Christ has come, Christ has died, Christ will rise again and will lead us to new life. And that begins now and continues on forevermore. As we trust in that hope, may we take a few moments of silence and acknowledge the places that Christ is leading us out of. give you thanks that you are not a God who hears the cries of your people and leaves them in Egypt, but you are the God who rescues. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.